Hello, and welcome to Dismantle Racism, where our goal is to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. We really aim to create a world where racial equity is the norm. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC, and today we're going to be taking a look at equity in higher education. But before we get started and I introduce you to today's guest, I want to invite us into a centering moment. And as always, I want you to just take a moment to find your breath and to tune in to that which gives you life. Take a moment to connect with divine wisdom and your sacred intelligence, which is that divine part of you that helps you to make intelligent choices. Breathe in, breathe out. And breathe in the knowledge that these choices manifest your greatness while helping other people to manifest their greatness, knowing that there is enough abundance in the world for all of us. And breathe in and breathe out, reminding yourself that you are loved and you are love itself. Breathe in and breathe out the knowledge that you are a part of a shared humanity and carry within you the power to heal and to be a part of changing the status quo. Breathe in, breathe out. Acknowledging the power of one contributes to the power of community. Now take a deep breath in, sigh it out and release it and enjoy the show. A lot of progress in the journey to racial equity in the past decades. There are more Black students and students of color who are entering and graduating from institutions of higher education than ever before. But true racial equity in higher education does not mean inserting Black Indigenous people of color into a system built on ideals of white supremacy and celebrating when they survive those systems. It means building institutions with values and procedures that are meant to give everyone an equal chance to succeed and thrive. Well, today we're going to be taking a look at institutional practices and some of the things that will help students of color not only just survive the institutions, but to really thrive. So I'm delighted to have my guest today, the Reverend Michael Hunt. Yes, I seem to have a lot of clergy who come on this show, but he is coming today in his capacity uh, as an educator. And we are really going to examine holistic critical mentoring. And he's going to talk about his framework for that. He works um, with students in the McNair Scholars Program with the University of Maryland. So we are delighted to have him to come and really take a look at how do we dismantle racism in higher education, particularly as it relates to the programming that is set up to maintain the status quo. As I said to you, he works for the University of Maryland at Baltimore County in the McNair Scholars Program. He is a native of Baltimore, Maryland, and his work focuses on radical 
inclusion through social justice engagement and interfaith meaning-making partnership. I think if we're going to engage in social justice, it has to be radical. It cannot be passive. We have to be out here doing the work. And so I am delighted because he bridges spirituality and uh, science and technology and engineering and math, STEM education by providing culturally nuanced resources for increasing self-esteem and promoting holistic critical mentoring, as I mentioned. And he is also a PhD student at UMBC's Language Literacy and Culture. Reverend Michael, welcome, welcome, welcome to the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, um, being here. I'm I'm excited to to talk with you and and our first conversation before we agreed to do this, you had me excited and us just connecting. So I'm ready for the conversation to go even further. Yes. And I know that that our audience is going to really benefit from the conversation that we are having today. But Reverend Mike, I always start the show by asking people what grounds you in this work? Because if you're like me, there are some days that I'm just tired. tired, So what grounds you? The ancestors. I, I just can't. I, I am. I often tell our students there's a phrase that um, um, I've heard growing up. Um, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, and, and I always remind the students, though, I add to that. I say we stand on the shoulders of giants, but we are to be the shoulder to others even now. Right. And, and not waiting for the to, for us to become ancestors. So I'm reminded of those who showed us even yesterday. Um, and my um, the circle that has surrounded me, um, the, 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 the chain had been broken and and one has gone on. And so I lift his name in this space, Arthur Welch, um, who was a part of my community in my home church that really grounded me in the work that I do and also pushes me to be even a, my better self. Yeah. And so I remember him and I remember my grandmother, Bastai Hall Hunt Foreman. I call these names um, because these are folks who I know are, are are sitting in the balconies of glory, as we say, you know, telling me to keep running, to keep fighting the fight, even when there are those who say that it is for naught, right? There's folks who say that the system will never change. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm just like, no, no, they put into me what they themselves could not continue to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now I, it's up to me, it's up to others. So when you talk about grounded, oh, I, I know I'm on solid ground. Mm-hmm. Um, because of those individuals, and I you know your P. McMillan from the NAACP in Baltimore, uh, just people that I know that I've either spent time with um, growing up, or those who who um, I know that their their path um, sort of set they set the path for me, and right. so that's that's really what where I, I am grounded. Well, I, Reverend, Reverend Mike, listen. You didn't come to the show to preach, but you already started out with a sermon right there. And I know there's some people who are listening like, wait, I want to go hear that brother preach because you can already tell the way that yes. you're bringing it forth. And, you know, I, I really appreciate this idea of bringing our ancestors into the space because that's that's one of the things that we do as uh, African-Americans often. Well, actually, as people of the diaspora. Let me be very clear about that, where we have these times where we pour libations to bring those yes. who came before us yep. into this space, yep. because I know if it were not for them, I wouldn't be sitting here either. So yes. it is so essential to take a look back and say, who are those people mm-hmm. and how have those people 
uh, helped to shape you. So I, I so appreciate that grounding because I know for me that there are times when I am feeling weary, in addition to my sacred grounding, I have to say, girl, you know what your people did? Do you know, right? And so what you're going through is like this much compared to what they're going through. However, I do still honor the experiences that that we go through as well. And and can I I add to that, that the students, so I do this with my students. uh, When when they first come into the program, after they go through orientation, they do a one-on-one meeting with me and my, my staff, and we just sit and talk with the individual students. And the first thing we have them do is what we just did is to call the people. Um, 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 their grounding moment when they first have that meeting with us is who are those folks who have laid the foundation? But I want you to think about, we often call ancestors or we hear ancestors, and I think that's great. But I also say, I want you to think about folks, not your parents, because we always call out parents and when we're talking about this and, I, and we respect and, and, and love that. But who are the other folks, right? Because you got to realize that you are surrounded. And when you recognize that, and the enemy recognizes that too, and the enemy wants to make sure that you don't remember those things. So when those moments come, you got to know who those folks who are grounding you, um, whether they are alive or have gone on to the other side. And so that's a part of like, even my method of, of mentoring and teaching students to sort of start there, because like you just said, there's going to be days. When you're like, (laughs) your days are coming. Yes. You need to be um, prepared. You know what? I I, see. I knew there was a way that we, why we had a kindred spirit here, because when I worked at the high school students, I would actually do the same thing just in our groups. We were having processing groups and I would say, who are the people in your neighborhood or who are your uh, heroes and your sheroes and your heroes? Because here's the thing particularly from where we sit and we look at education, our stories are not always told. And so it is very important for us to help them to know the stories and for us to help them to see that maybe that man that's walking down the street, who's cleaning the street, know what their story is, because that could be the impetus for your greatness. And you just have to be able to realize that. So I love it because you're incorporating it already into your mentoring program. But before we jump to your mentoring, yes, 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 yes. There's 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 a, a little bit that I want to know. Can you tell us you work with mostly first generation students yes. in the Ronald McNair program? First, can you tell us a little bit about what that program really is? And then if we have time before our first break, tell us what fuels your passion in in working in this program? Yeah, so the Ronald E. McNair um, Baccalaureate um, Scholars Program is geared towards getting first-gen low-income and students who are from excluded racial um, ethnic groups, um, um, and I say historically excluded, that's a term that I'm starting to use now um, instead of minority, um, that historically excluded and getting them into graduate education, ultimately to get their PhD. And so um, a research degree um, um, basis. And it's named after Dr. McNair, you know, the physicist, the one who um, perished in the um, the Challenger explosion in um, 86, I believe. Um, and he was, I believe, the second to enter into space. I mean, just a phenomenal uh, um, person, um, scholar extraordinaire. One of the things people don't know is that, you know, uh, one of the stories is that he lost his um, whole dissertation 
and had to rewrite it again. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, doctor, <laughs> you know what that means, right? And so this was that that phenomenal person. And so Congress, this was done by an act of Congress um, and even an act of Congress where um, um, Strom Thurmond um, was was behind the salute of that. And folks, if you don't know what that is, go look that up. Right. That, 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 was, that was an act of God. Right. Yeah, Act of God. Right. That, there, right. That, like that, he was behind that. Right. And so, um, um, but we, we, we literally get them from undergraduate into graduate school. Um, and, and they got 10 years is the goal. Um, and I, we provide them mentoring. Uh, we provide them research opportunities so they get funding for research. Um, they um, get to travel to conferences and present at conferences, all those things um, that helps them to get into graduate school. We so sort of, um, um, our program is set up to do that. We have 180 um, six right now of those funded programs across the country, but each one is individually done. So it's not like we all do the same and, and manage the same. We have the main four goals that we all are responsible for, but as grantee, uh, as the, um, the grantees in this, um, each, each, the way in which we function is different. Different. Um, and do you all come together at some point? So we, uh, we have conferences and things where different programs do different things, but we, once there's two phrases we, we, we often use is talking about us as the McNair family so that students know that as they travel, they're meeting folks in the McNair family, but then also once a McNair, always a McNair. And so even after you graduate, um, even if you don't go on to graduate school right away, you know, there's a sense that you're still a part of the community. Okay, so we actually do have to take a break. But when we come back, I really want to know what what fuels you in this work and how you got interested in the McNair uh, program itself. So we're going to be right back with Dismantle Racism. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. My guest today is the Reverend Michael Hunt. We'll be right back. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Are you on edge? Hey, we live in challenging, edgy times, so let's lean in. I'm Sandra Bargeman, the host of The Edge of Every Day, which airs each Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live with me and my friends and colleagues as we share stories and perspectives about pushing boundaries and exploring our rough edges. That's The Edge of Every Day on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.
We're back with Dismantle Racism. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. My guest today, Reverend Michael Hunt, uh, is my guest. And before the break, we were talking about the Ronald McNair program and all the wonderful work that you do there. Tell us a little bit about um, how how you got started in this work or what fuels your passion to work with first-gen students. Well, well, I think the first thing to really say is that I, I am first gen, right? And so, so this population, um, I hit all the categories that we serve. We serve first gen, we serve low income, we serve, um, those from, um, um, historically excluded racial groups. And so those three categories, I, I, I am a living poster of, of that. Um, but again, it was my mom, you know, who really surrounded me. Um, with community and with people. Um, and I and often I say it's it, it was for her sake and my sake, right? Um that 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 was done, right? Um and and from that I was actually a uh, a McNair scholar um when I was at UMBC. And so um one the people there, um Cynthia Hill, who the director at the time um and, and still stays in my life, like she's um, uh, and she's at retired now, um, but she's she's she was one who always connected to the lived experience of our students too, and so all my lifelong journey. Look, she she came to my um, my um, trial sermon. She was at my ordination. She was when I had my graduation stuff. She was there when I got married a few years ago. She was there, and that kind of connectedness. Um, was what I knew what was important for me to sort of continue um, in the work. And so although we do things a little differently than her generation, um, it's those moments. Again, we stand on the shoulders of giants. And, and, and it's that reminder for me that the work that she um, um, has done is something that I want to be a part of. And then I had another mentor, um, Lamont Tolliver, um, who is now in the Gates of Glory as well, where where he was the director of the Meyerhoff program that I was a part of, which is a similar scholar support program at UMBC. And so I was in both programs. And I remember him. He was a bigger than life person, right? Um, and um, we would just have conversations. And there was always these tolerisms, we were called, where he would say these sayings um, that we now remember we when we get together or talk to folks, the folks remember those things because he cared. And so I think a lot of what I do and fueled by is knowing that I was surrounded by a community, but then also in these kinds of programs, I had people too who really cared. And it it it, it actually shows your passion for UMBC for one, because yes. you're still coming through yes. there. And yes. Your passion for wanting to help more and more and more students. So, um, so, so let's talk a little bit about what you're noticing with the students and what you're noticing surrounding GRE scores and and the like. One of the things that that really hits me when I when I talk about this topic is that. Our students, and really think of the populations that I just talked about, I'm thinking about all the barriers that are placed on them, even before we talk talking about the GREs. Right. Right. And, and, and preparing for graduate school. Um, the stories that I have to I navigate with my students and the challenges that they have faced where, where um, uh, they at times need people uh, one, well, two things. One, we're teaching them how to self-advocate, which I, which is one of the things I'm noticing that students don't do. And we're, and I'll be honest with you, our students don't do because other students. 
from the majority background, oh, they the, those folks are advocating for themselves left and right. Mama and them told told them how to do that. Right. right? Right. But us, we suffer in silence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we, 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 even in, in our, the black culture community, there's this sense of keep your business in the house, right? You don't, right. You, don't you don't tell, you don't tell folks, um, business. And then even as kids, we're told to stay out of grown folks' business, right? And so we're trying to figure out that. And the students are growing up in that. And they're like, so who do I talk to? Like, I, I'm suffering. Well, so so I I I, I want to just jump in here, for yeah, a please, please. Because so I want to tell you this whole advocacy piece. It goes really, really deep, and I love that you said other folks have told their students. Like, in fact, other folks think, "Well, I have the right." Yes, I have the right to come yes. to that. And so, if yes. we're talking about racism, I think we we really do have to kind of think about the ways in which our students may not think that they're supposed to go and ask. Now, in all fairness, I've seen st- all students uh, have yeah. difficulty going to advocate for themselves, but there's something about us as well, and it's across institutions because Almost. <laughs> you know my my kids and other kids I know who go to HBCU sometimes I'm like did you go and talk to your professor about this did you you have to go you can't just make assumptions that your professor is reading your mind about things and they don't know if you're having difficulties so I just really want to be very clear and for those people who are listening out here you have to have to advocate for yourself and get your children to advocate now I mentioned HBCUs, but when students are at predominantly white institutions Mm -hmm. and they're students of color, it's even more difficult for them to find themselves in those spaces where they go and advocate. So if we're going to um, advance the conversation, it's important for professors to know that you might have to make a special effort when you're talking to your students of color to invite them into the conversation to invite them in when you're in the classroom and you're even talking because we're, we actually become invisible. Yep. 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 And, and what, what I also find is that that one, that self-advocacy um, and we're trying to do that to give, give that to them, but also there's this sense of um, remembering that, as I stated earlier, that, that the layers, there's layers of stuff, that there, and I call, and, and be honest with you, I, I, I try to be mindful how I use this word, but I want to be honest about it. Those layers is trauma. Mm. Right? Those layers are, are, are things that they themselves don't understand what's happening um, for them. And I say that even as one who had to deal with those layers in multiple communities, in my church community, in my work community of dealing with trauma, even with from mentors and folks that 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 I had to be able to do self work for myself as mm. a staff member mm. before I could even deal with their trauma. Right. So so we just need to we just need to breathe that one. Yes. Because here's what I want to say about trauma, particularly as a um a psychologist is that we often think of trauma as this this maybe um, traumatic event 
that happened, right. yep. experience that's happened. But for us as people of color, we get trauma on trauma on trauma every single day. When I look and I see my black brother over here being shot or with a knee on their neck, that's trauma, trauma for me. It's trauma that I'm living through. When I have to see, you know, stories of injustices happening. It doesn't have to be someone getting killed. That's trauma because what it's doing is this reminding me not only of my history, it's reminding me of my present. And so if we as people of color, Black people in particular, would just um, understand that there's a need for us to do the personal work then we also can deal with, because I heard you say, even the trauma from your mentors, we can deal with our own internalized stuff that we dole out on on our kids without knowing, right? Yes, yeah. And I remember one of my mentors once saying, you know, be careful, especially as a pastor, that that you're not pouring your blood out onto the people, Mm -hmm. right? And so you've got to, you, you have to be mindful of that often um and 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 it's work right but 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 you also got to know that what how you just described it is important because i think um we want to deal with trauma from the event but not really seeing it as life in that sense and how we're journeying um and so those are the two things that even for me was important as i do this work i had to ground myself Mm. um in ways and 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 let me be honest. It was my students who often called me out on it. Wow. Right. And yet I had, but I had to have an openness to hear it and an openness to change it. Yes. Right. Because also what we we're told to do is when, 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 when is that because I said so, right. Is, right. is what we're used to hearing like that authority thing. And even for me, I was in that space. And again, when I talk about mentoring and the work that I do and why this is this work and even the GREs is important is because our we're taught to keep a system in place because that's what we're used to. And not is it benefiting? Who is it benefiting and who is it not? So tell us a little bit then about, you know, the the, the GRE, like what you're noticing about the scores, how right. you work with your students to maybe even improve or change those those scores because really those scores are they are keeping a systemic uh a system of of racism right well well, i'll say this because i know we're going to break in a moment but that there is a um a a a, when you're looking at the barriers um students are often dealing with there's sort of like four areas of barriers they're dealing with Um, um the having to take the test in general so finding the, the financial resources, right, to take it. Now, here's, here it is. The McNair program, and just listen how crazy this is. By the regulation, the federal regulations, we can't pay for test preparation. So I'm, I'm just going to let you that sink in for a second, right? So we have to find other alternatives or work it in as a workshop or something else then providing them direct support for test preparation, but schools are using it to, for graduate um, prep, you know, as well, or getting them into graduate school, right? So financially, so even for us, our students have a leg up, McNair scholars to some degree, because we've helped to find funding for them to do those things, but um, they have to pay for prep, they have to pay to take the test, and they have to pay to take ten, send the scores, right? Now, here's the other thing. It was the dean's, 
right? And, and the graduate schools that actually went to ETS to create the test. But guess who's paying for the test? Mm. <laughs> See, that's, that's where, where folks, you, gotta, you got to follow the money in this kind of situation, right? And then you look at ETS, a multi-billion dollar, ready for this? Nonprofit. <laughs> and so, so I, I, so I just, so that financial yeah. is huge. Yeah. Then you look at the stereotype threat where students are trying to perform to their top ability and don't want to be seen as lower or causing, you know, um, um, or meeting um, the what what stereotypes say about their particular um, grouping, right? So they, they're dealing with that. The stress of test preparation, test anxiety. All of that that's tied into it. Um, and so there's a multiple of barriers that mm-hmm. our students are facing. And now with the pandemic happening and they couldn't take the test, now institutions, you're, you're, before, no, we got to have the GRE. But now things break down. Now they say, oh, well, um, because of the, they can't get to the test, we're not going to do it. So now they're finding alternatives. Well, why couldn't you find alternatives? Why couldn't you find person? those before? So look, we do have to take a quick break, but I want to come back to it so that you can talk about the, the other uh, layers as well. And then I also want to just explain that little stereotype of threat just a little bit more, because this is a very serious issue that Clark yes. Hill has talked about for years, whether it's related to race or gender or any of these things. And yes. it's, it's very serious, but I, I, I love where we're going with this. So we're going to be right back. I'm your host of this, the Dismantle Racism show, the Reverend Dr. TLC. We'll be right back. Howdy, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Are you passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day.
We're back with Dismantle Racism, and I'm talking today with Reverend Michael Hunt, who has really been sharing with us about some of the inequities as it exists for students who are trying to get into graduate school. And so before the break, um, Reverend Mike, you spoke a bit about the GREs. You talked a lot and enlightened us around the financial limitations and who's really making the money uh, from test taking, as well as talking about stereotypes, uh, threats, and the stress that's also there for students of color. And interestingly enough, how we've suddenly decided that we don't need those tests anymore. The thing that I want folks to really kind of understand about a stereotype threat, and you did, you mentioned this and you talked about what goes into it, but it's important for folks to realize that even students of color who have had, and I'm going to talk uh, of Black students in particular, because they've shown the research that even middle-class Black students are outperformed by poor white students on standardized tests. And presumably they've had the same sorts of training as middle-class white folks. But what stereotype threat is, is the amount of the additional stress that we take into the situation when we're taking a test. And some of that has to do with like, am I going to pass this test? What are they going to think of me as a black person if I don't pass this test? It's like the extra stuff that we carry with us. And I think that most people don't realize the extra stress that we carry around. All people experience it, but we experience about 25 to 50% more stress than, than whites do. And so I thank you for bringing that out in terms of, Uh, the stereotype threat piece because it's so significant, which is why we ought to have alternatives to getting into graduate schools. Yes, Um, yes, yes, yes. Yes. So there were, were there other things that you were going to add about? So uh, I think the the only other thing was that uh, when I was talking about the pandemic and us being able to change, It's not necessarily that they're realizing we don't need the test, but it is that they're recognizing why do we have the test, Mm. right? And and I am working with departments on our campus, um, on one in particular, where we're trying to find funding for, for this particular project, where they are wanting to, they know that quantitative skills is important. And, and even over the break, over this, um, over the summer, um, um, this past year, what they did was they, um, for the incoming PhD students, and this is our public policy, and I, I'm just so proud of what they are doing with this work, um, that they, they actually sent a, 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 a email or information to incoming students. So they didn't count the GREs, but they said, hey, this is what we know you need quantitatively. Where do you fit on the scale? And it was a self-assessment. And then they provided them resources online, YouTube or um, Khan Academy um, type things. Those online resources say, okay, if you need help with this, this is what you need to do, right? On top of that, they now also, I believe, have a, a tutor that works with students in those particular classes that they coming in that were struggling in certain areas. Mm. So again, they remove the barrier from the student Right. And saying we're going to help you because we're bringing you in and we want you to finish. So that's the other thing that people talk about is, well, just because and again, GRE doesn't test 
whether um, they do well in graduate school. It's supposed to be a correlation between their first year grades is what they're saying. But oftentimes we know, and this is one thing that um, I, I've heard often and 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 uh, we talk about, especially being a black man, there's a saying that black men don't finish, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Particularly when you think about graduate education. And if you look at the numbers, it tells that story that we get them in but do they actually complete, mm. right? And mm. so, so the work that needs to be happening is not just the entrance to the to the institution, right? But it's the retention and the follow through, and, and ultimately the the degree, um, the the giving of the degree. Um, so, as well. so I have to ask you there then. Then two things from this, and so if the GREs are not used, what? are some of the guidelines then for students get in? So how will they distinguish? Well, we don't have this to use as a qualifier. So what are they doing? And secondly, what would be some of the things that are needed to help people stay in school? And I imagine that your holistic critical mentoring program speaks about that. Yeah. So, so part, part of the work in this for, for us is to get institutions um, uh, uh, to, to see that the way I phrase it is that higher education is full of smart folks. Can't we just sit down and have conversations instead of relying on ETS to do it? Right. Um, and that's what happened last week. I met with the graduate um, program directors at UMBC. I also met with our research department or um, research committee on campus and gave a, a presentation on, on this. And from that, you started hearing people throwing out ideas. Mm. And when I met, when I first brought this up to our institution, I brought it up because of several things. Black Lives Matter. Right. Um, the death of um, George Floyd. I've always been an activist growing up. I was a part of the NAACP, did, did major work uh, as a student. But, you know, I'm not in the streets like I used to be, right, with that kind of work. And, um, but yet this work is that work, right? And I had to figure out what could I do. So my pushing this discontinued this, this in GREs also sent my students' voices because these are the stories. I'm not saying what I went through. I'm telling you their experiences and based on what they're going through, even in this moment, not 20 years ago when I was going through the situation. Right. I'm talking about today. And so from all of that, institutions need to really um, do a soul searching. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And figure out what is what are they seeking? Right. What are the skills they're looking for? So that's why I love what our public policy was doing. Like they literally centered the voices of their students to say, okay, what do you need? All right. And then what they need to do, which they haven't been able to do because they the, the university um, um, funding part, because fund money needs to be allocated. Right. And once they start realizing where the money is, again, they're not paying ETS anything. But our students are paying them close to three, four hundred dollars just to get the tests and the test scores mm. sent. Right. And that's already, like you said, or an equity right there, because. Where are you getting $300 from right. if you are coming from poverty already? Where are you getting that from? Right, right, right. right. And talking about that stereotype threat, like I, 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 multiple of my students taking tests the day before where they had to work 12-hour shifts. Yes. Right. Or where they had to um, uh, find a babysitter mm-hmm. and even had to reschedule tests because they couldn't find, because their babysitter canceled them. Mm-hmm. 
right? Mm -hmm. These are stories from, from our students nationwide, right? That they're not listening to, but they, when they decided to make changes to, to policies, um, they decide to talk to the deans, right? And to even the McNair directors, right? And the, de- the deans, you know, are making six figures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when was the last time they took the test? Right. right. You know, but I, I will say one of the things that I'm encouraged about that you are uh, speaking on today with, with what you all are doing with your public policy, one of the things that we witnessed in 2020 was people throwing money at situations but not understanding the depth and the level of systemic racism and what needs to happen in order to change a system. Money doesn't do everything. Listen, when we came out of enslavement, they, they promised us 40 acres and a mule, right? They're waiting, honey. Yeah. They're waiting. But, but at least that 40 acres and a mule, they understood that maybe you could do a little bit. You could do a little something, right, yeah. A little bit yeah. of something with it. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but when you throw money at a situation, but then you don't prepare the people, as you say, for attention after. How many stories have we heard of students who got full funding to college, $200,000 to get to college, and then got to college and were not retained because right. they didn't know, they were, they were like a fish out of water. Right. So talk to us a little bit then about your, uh, you know, your, your historical critical mentoring program. Yes. So, so, so part of the work that I've been doing, to be honest with you, has been changing, changing the conversation. And part of changing that conversation requires us, um, in essence, to rethink what we do. And it really, honestly, it started with me when I first came into the, the institution. Um, I, I did not, I did not center my students and I was mentoring the way I was, I was being mentored. And it wasn't necessarily the what they actually needed. And so as I began doing my PhD work, I just want to share with you my definition of how I've defined holistic critical mentoring. It's defined as a network of inclusive reciprocal relationships between mentees and mentors that centers the voices and values, um, the mentees whole being. Um, um, a holistic critical mentoring, HCM is what I, I refer to it as, is an ongoing process of learning from the mentees and the mentors' collective lived experiences while challenging and disrupting white supremacy and racism exhibited within white normative interpretations of professionalism. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so this isn't just about um, um, and what I'm trying to get institutions to see is that this holistic critical mentoring, the model that we have, isn't just about the one-on-one mentoring experience. It's a collective experience that even we as institutions can begin to, to dive into. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're, we're at a break. I want you to say more about that as a yes. what you mean by the institution really diving into the mentoring program. And I thank you so much because I believe I said historical as opposed Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. And that's fine because this is going to be historical. Right. I believe and, it. And this is that's how right. I'm thinking about it. And I believe yes. think about even just the history of needing that to be a part of the holistic program. You got to. So yep. you're going to come back and talk a little bit more about your program after the break. This is Dismantle Racism. I'm Reverend Dr. TLC. We'll be right back. 
Join us every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern for the Mind Behind Leadership, where we focus on what leadership really means to us and to others. We have practical discussions with the CEOs of some of the world's largest companies, owners of small businesses, and experts in psychology and behavior to get that inside track, what to do, what to avoid, and what really happens. Join me, Graham Dobbin, at the new time, 4 p.m. every Tuesday for the Mind Behind Leadership here live on talkradio.nyc. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Calling all pet lovers. Pet Avengers, assemble! On the Professionals and Animal Lovers show, we believe the bond between animal lovers is incredibly strong. It mirrors that bond between pets and their owners. Through this program, we come together to learn, educate, and advocate. Join us live every Wednesday at 2 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. We are back with Dismantle Racism. I have been delighted to talk today with Reverend Michael Hunt, and we've been talking about uh, inequities in uh, higher education. And Dr. Hunt, um, well, soon, soon to be Dr. Hunt. I'll, I'll put it. Claim like, it. Claim it. Come on now. Claiming it right now. <laughs> yes. Reverend yes. Hunt, uh, you were talking about your holistic uh, mentoring program before the show, so continue to tell us a little bit about. Uh, that program and how you see institutions as the mentor. So, so, and, and so I'm, one of the things I, I've been intentional about is not calling it a program. Mm-hmm. Okay. And more so a model for folks to, and, and, and a conceptual model in essence, but um, for folks to be able to consider how they weave in aspects of this into their programs right okay. um so it's it's not a cut and dry like here we go let's do this thing it really requires what you what we did th- this whole conversation is what what my process was in this which you had us doing some self-reflection right and this there wasn't a a let's just get down to work right it's like we've got to we got to build up um to, to where we're going and that's what this model calls you to do so first thing there's there's several tenets and i just want to highlight the tenets it acknowledges that race and racism and white supremacy impacts mentees, um, mentors, um, programs, and institutions, right? So it's it's not just on me that there's aspects of the mentee or the mentor, right? All of us are impacted by this. It centers the voices and experiences of the mentee, right? So oftentimes it's top down with a mentor's voice, is you go and talk to the mentor to see what they can give instead of, no, we're, we're flipping this. 
dynamic, right? Um, it supports the holistic needs of the mentee, right? And so it understands their mental, their physical, spiritual, financial, academic, career, all of that is an important part of the mentee, mentee's um, experiences. But then it requires reciprocity, right? Where we are um, sharing of ideas and engaged in and in, in giving and taking and, and really building something and not one where I'm just taking from the mentor as the mentee or the mentor is just giving, et cetera. No, we're all in this together. And then it invites the mentee and mentor to, um, to collectively bring their culture and lived experience to the mentoring relationship. So we don't leave that at the door. We, we bring that all to the table while also challenging the white normative interpretations of professionalism. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and we get stuck on what is professional. Right. And what professionalism looks like, et cetera. And we force our mentees to do that. And I was forced into that. And I forced my students into it. After I was like, oh, wait. Something's got to change. We need to rethink what this means to be professional, right? And then it creates that network. So again, this is a lot of work, but you can't do it on your own. Mm-hmm. And so it creates a network of mentor relationships to support the men- mentee, right? So it's not just all on this one mentor um, or um, that we do this. But then it finally, it recognizes the mentee as a budding expert within their content area. Mm-hmm. Right. So is it again, they, they are coming with their lived experience and not just their lived experience. I, when I look at my, my mentees and some of the stuff that they do, I mean, I learn so much from them that I'm like, wait, how you do that? Right. <laughs> how, 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 you know, teach me, you know, right. this. Right. And I'm open to that. And they know, oh, yeah, I'm gonna have a teaching session with Michael. Right. I even tried to move away from saying Mr. Hunt mm-hmm. at times, you know, to say Michael. Right. Let's just right. let's just talk because I you re- if, I got, I know people who call me Mr. Hunt and don't respect me. Right, right. right. And right. so the name thing isn't about the respect to me. It's the relationship. It's mm-hmm. what we have there that matters to me. And these are all lessons that I've learned as I'm mentoring. And I believe institutions can, can institute these, even as we talk about the GREs, for instance, are they being mindful of the needs of the students that they are, um, they're doing this with? Are they really thinking outside the box? Are they recognizing that first thing that how race and racism and white supremacy is, is um, tied all up in the standardized testing? Right. right? Um, so I'll, I'll stop there. Well, each of those tenants, I mean, that's, it's fantastic. I mean, even if you just think about the first one, for institutions to think about how it's impacting them, because often people don't think about, white people don't think about how white supremacy and uh, systemic racism are impacting them. They're losing out too. Now, one thing I think that I would love for you to do, because I know this is one of the challenges I have when I'm teaching or when I'm writing and I use phrases like white supremacy and people will go, well, I'm not a white supremacist. Yeah. I'm not wearing a white hood. Right. Uh, tell us what your definition of white supremacy is. For, for me, white supremacy is when white people, or let me rephrase it, is when um we are set up in a situation that em- empowers white people over others. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and so sometimes when, when, when I explain this to folks, I'm not saying like you just said, it. I, I, I'm not saying that you are the cause or you are, you know, cause we, we like to tie it into racist. You're, you're being a racist, right. you're, you're, you're white supremacist. No, there are things that you benefit from 
right? That that we continue to conti- continue to perpetuate, even as Black folks. Well, I was going to say that I, it's also important for us, for us to know that we perpetuate those well, things as well because we we think white is better. Some, yeah. some. Well, not, well, well, and and we unintentionally think it too. Exactly. Right. So that's it's not whole, just, and that's yeah. a whole another show. Whole another show. But well, look, look can, can I add when you just said like um my, my sign up here? So y'all see it, the white white you know let me see dismantling white oh it's on the side there we go dismantling white supremacy right? I put this up um I was in a meeting over the summer last summer around um uh, where after the George Floyd thing a group of us got together to talk about um. Uh, what what we're going through. And these were really black folks in a group I'm in. And one of the sisters in the group had this up. So this is not even mine initially, right? Um, She had it up and we're like, when we're in the Zoom, we're like, oh my gosh, you got to send us that. So she sent it to us. And at first it was my silent protest, right? In every meeting um, I was in, whether on here on Zoom, whether in WebEx, um, Google wouldn't let me be great. Google didn't let you add your own thing at the moment, right? Your own background, right? But but all other places, I had it up, and it was just silent protests. But then over the summer, as I'm working with my students, I realized how much, even as the director of a program, that I am in power, and that I can either continue to hold up white supremacy and the the rules and the deadline, things that I've set up to to manage the program and even how I um, advocate for the students and what I advocate for and what I take on. And so it became really like a um, uh, what I call a mirror. Mm. But every time I look at this now, every meeting I'm in, it's not about y'all. And some of y'all, some folks see it and think it's about them. No, it's about me. What, What you need to do. What I need to do. Right. That is so, so powerful. And, you know, I think that what folks have to understand is in this work to dismantle racism, it is about the individual looking inward to say, what do I need to do to be a part of changing the system? And like you said, nobody's saying, well, you're the racist, you're this, you're that. No, what do you need to do? And so, I think if we take that fear out of taking a look at ourselves, and I think that institutions could do a better job and institutions would, would benefit more if they would begin to take a look at themselves. So listen, uh, you know, Reverend Mike, getting close to the, to the end here, are there final things that you want to add either about the program that at uh, the McNair program or, um, your holistic uh, critical mentoring program in our in our final few seconds here. I, I often tell people that um, the work that I do, I'm happy. I love my job. I love the students that I work with, um, their lived experiences, learning from them. I grow every day. And yet I'm disappointed. Mm. I'm disappointed because we still need McNair programs. Mm. Right? We've been around for, this is our 30th year at UMBC. And I'm like, why are we still relevant? Right? Because we are. Like, like you, you, you cannot take this program away from these institutions. Like, I'm grateful for us and all the TRIO, the federal or TRIO program, Upward Bound and, and Talent Search. All of that is needed in this moment. But why? And so that's the work of the institutional leadership. And one of the things my, my, my professor, we talk about this semester, we're reminding folks that institutions is made up of people. 
So sometimes we throw this word institution around and just lay all institution to God and no one changes anything. Mm-hmm. And where, where I'm trying to push folks to think of, okay, you are in power and in leadership. Let's have the conversations. Let's make some changes. Let's do something because we represent the institution. Yes. Well, you know, Reverend Mike, I'm so glad that you were with us today and so glad that you're calling us to raise it up. Raise it up. Yes. Yes. And that you're calling on institutions and individuals to recognize the individual. So Reverend Mike, if you would tell us how we can get in touch with you. Um, I, I would love, um, I'm on uh, all social media um, platforms. Um, and so you can look me up there. And if you want to take a look at my um, my link tree, um, link tree um, slash Michael A. Hunt. Um, it has all my information there. Um, link L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E um, backwards slash Michael A. Hunt. Um, you'll find me there. Okay. And could you please just leave us with a blessing for today? Yes. Yes. For all those who are listening and for us in this space, go knowing that you are more than enough, mm. that you have what it takes and that you are surrounded by a community of people who not only love you, but are rooting for you and will also help you in the dismantling of those things that are hindering your blessings. Mm. So go forth knowing that you are loved. Ah, Thank you so, so much. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, Reverend Hunt, I'm delighted that you were with us. This has been Dismantle Racism with your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. Please stay tuned for the Conscious Consultant Hour with Sam Leibowitz. We will see you next time. Be well, be safe, be encouraged. Bye for now. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Have you ever thought of reinventing yourself? Are you looking to create a new life's journey? Hi, I'm Kevin Barbro, host of Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 5, 8 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live to hear me and my guests from a variety of different backgrounds. As a former college coach and a current full-time actor and owner of multiple companies, my show is as eclectic as my life. That's Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. informed about menopause and how it impacts on your life? 
Hi, I'm Pat Duckworth, women's health strategist and host of the Hot Women Rock radio show, empowering women leaders at menopause. Join me every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. UK Time on talkradio.nyc for interviews with inspirational women who will share their top tips to rock your world. In a post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. 